great song. Happens to be Von Palmer's favorite meatloaf song. Isn't that right, Von? That's correct, Simeon. It's a big deal to hear uh, the village people knocked off their pedestal as my introductory music for this spot on Friday. <laughs> it really is, but only the death of Meatloaf could make that happen. And you know what? You made a great point in an email to me this morning is that why didn't he, why isn't he in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, so first of all, Meatloaf and his collaborator, Jim Steinman, who wrote all this stuff, um, have been eligible uh, for 20 years. So it's not like they've been overlooked for a short period of time. They've been overlooked for 20 years. And um, it's a maybe not a widely known secret about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but inductions are controlled by a very narrow group of music historians, producers, rock critics, God help us all. Um, And they're... uh, very tightly controlled group. Uh, They've been, as you probably know, in controversy because they haven't inducted nearly enough women in. But uh, near as I can determine from what I've read about this, um, their view uh, seems to be that even though Meatloaf is one of the best-selling rock artists of all time, he's he's kind of vulgar. He's he's sort of, uh, you know, not not suitable company for sophisticates like ACDC and the Ramones. I mean, my reaction to all that is vulgar. Yeah, it's rock and roll, folks. Uh, you want That's dignity? Crazy. Check out the Budapest String Quartet. It, it, but that seems to be the reason. He's there's a petition out there, an online petition, and people can go on and sign it and call on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to add Meatloaf to the inductees. But that little narrow group that controls access, I mean, they've made some great choices over the years, and a lot of the people that are in there belong to be there, but I think uh, they've been keeping out Meatloaf because, you know, he's kind of crass and all that, which, you know, (laughs) one can't really argue with that. I've seen him in concert. He played the P&E Garden in uh, July 30th, 1978, opening act, Bruce Allen's band, Prism. Oh, Uh, Great, great show, enormous yes. fun. I mean, you can't. I, I again, one of the great charms of rock and roll to me is that you can't take it too seriously. And heavens only knows, Meatloaf uh, did never took it all that seriously. I mean, his stuff is really funny, among other things. That is so true. You're right, so right about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, though, because like I just I looked it up after here, you know, talking to you about that. And there's so many bands that have been snubbed for like really great artists that have been snubbed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Go Go's only made it in this year, yeah. and I thought that was shocking. Yeah, they do have one good rule: you wait 25 years, right? And and that one makes sense because. You know, this year's big number one hit and all that stuff, uh, it might fade. You might be a one-hit wonder. You might be forgotten. Uh, So if if people are still remembering you the way people are remembering Meatloaf today, after 25 years, there's a good, and they've sold that many records, there's a good argument for putting that artist in. And there are a couple of things about Meatloaf that are unusual anyway. One of them is just the sort of operatic nature of his music. And I know rock and opera don't really go together, but there is that quality of storytelling about them. And as I said, he is also extremely, extremely funny. One of the reasons I love Paradise by the Dashboard Light is because of the middle section where they got the play-by-play announcer of the New York Yankees, Phil Rizzuto, 
to do a play-by-play <laughs> of Meatloaf's <laughs> effort to get to first base with his girlfriend. I mean, it, it's, you know, <laughs> and, and that's the same with some of his other stuff, too. So, you know, I think he belongs there, and uh, maybe the passing of Meatloaf will um, shame the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame into including him. One would hope Pat Benatar is not in there, and I'm shocked just to read that, that Pat Benatar is not in there. But you know what? We'll save that for another time. There's lots yeah. of other things for us to talk about. Uh, let's This 10 o'clock briefing this morning, Vaughn, this is a bit unusual for a Friday. It is unusual, although since Omicron became a big problem, they have been stepping up, uh, giving us two a week. So that's part of it. Uh, Also, it's another one of these days where they have some explaining to do. So twice this week, the BC Centre for Disease Control and Public Health have changed the guidelines without telling anybody that they've done it. They've left it for the news media to find out about it. And yeah, we're supposed to read these things, and we do, and we report it. Uh, Yesterday, the BC CDC apologized for not explaining what they were doing. These things are complicated enough without, you know, a lack of explanation for what we're doing and why from the government that's issuing the orders. That is uh, very, very true. Um, And what is going to be the explanation? Like, what is the excuse for the way it happened? Well, you know, you and I talked about this on the radio yesterday morning, and I pointed out that Uh, the government collectively and the health regions collectively have more than 200 people in the communications business. Now, that's for all issues and all government agencies. But, you know, nevertheless, like with that many people working there, why couldn't they announce it and explain it? We got an interesting response yesterday from Health Communications. First of all, nice that they're listening, saying to me in the morning, hello there, Health Communications, glad to know you're online. Uh, they <laughs> said, well, you know, it's not our job. Um, it's not their job. It's their job to communicate Ministry of Health communications, but the BC Centre for Disease Control and Provincial Health Officer Bonnie Henry are independent, and it's not really their job to communicate what they're doing. So it's not their problem. And, you know, my reaction to that is, well, you would think with all those people in communications in government, somebody would be responsible for doing it, but apparently not. Apparently not. No, uh, that was the thing that really surprised me, all of those people. And I don't understand how this deep into the pandemic, they can still release information like this. And somebody didn't say, hey, uh, should we not be a little bit more clear about this? Yes, it it illustrates, uh, again, for the benefit of the listener and people grumbling about how the media covered this thing, it illustrates the challenge that reporters collectively have faced on this, which is trying to get straight answers on the biggest story of our time. Uh, Lots of our colleagues have had the experience, Simi, of phoning a health region for an explanation and being put off or not getting an answer, or they'll tell you, well, go on the phone call with Dr. Bonnie Henry and ask her, right? And you know that those questions are fairly limited and rationed, so you don't get to ask all the time. A lot of the time on this story, news organizations collectively and reporters, even those of us who cover it closely, have been scrambling to get straight answers and explanations. And you're right. It is astonishing two years in that they still don't have, with all the staff they have, a regular 
rational and dependable system of communicating to the public. Another story that um, also really caught my attention yesterday, we're going to be talking more about it on Monday. We hope to have the health minister join us, but about the hospital parking, the free parking at hospitals. Now, as somebody who has had relatives in hospital in the last two years and spent a lot too much time in a hospital, uh, that was a godsend. Yes, it was the free parking, but you know what happened. It's one of these, what were they thinking? I talked to somebody uh, this week who had the experience of having to go in to one of the hospitals for tests and discovered that the parkade was filled at 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, 6 o'clock in the morning, those aren't all people uh, coming into the hospital. And what's going on? And he was told... Come on, it's park and ride now. It's become park and ride. People, word got around that it was free parking at the hospital. Nobody was policing it. Some of the hospitals, the Royal Columbian's a good example, are in the middle of transportation nodes. People were parking their cars there, taking transit to their workplace, and picking up their cars at the end of the day. And this word, as I said, Simi, had gotten around, uh, you know, more than a year ago. I heard when they announced it from people who said, come on, you know, as soon as word gets around, people are going to use this for reasons other than... Which uh, just honestly, Vaughn, is so upsetting to me because, you know what, when you're in a situation where you have a loved one in the hospital, the last thing to add to your stress you need is to look for parking. And why would people do that? That is what people that parking is for. And, and people with mobility issues were facing this problem, and I gather healthcare workers and doctors were facing it too. I mean, they do have separate parking lots, but I gather they were hitting the problem. So finally, um, they've stopped it, and you know, they they admitted yesterday this little exercise has cost seventy eight million dollars. Now. You could say, A, a drop in the bucket compared to the size of the health care budget, but I have to think there's an awful lot of agencies and charities and interests out there that are saying, hey, with another $78 million, we could have fixed this or fixed that or fixed something else. Instead of throwing it away, a lot of it on people who didn't need hospital parking. They just took advantage of free parking.